say, you know what it is? It's actually a human heart thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's, the, it's us wanting to believe, you know, fear of change and uh, fear of questioning things and just taking the status quo and then just, uh, you know, repetition, you know, repetition, repetition, we start believing stuff. And then if you question it, you're now, you're an oddball. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. It blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Rare Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 33. I interview W. Kent Smith. W. Kent Smith is a writer, producer, and author. In this episode, we talk about his book, Fish Tales which is the term he is deemed for biblical misconceptions. We get into a bunch of different misconceptions held by Christians and non-Christians alike. So with no further ado, let's get weird. All right, so thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'm excited to get into our topic. Uh, first, uh, give us a little bit of how you grew up and how you came to know Christ. Well, very, very young, uh, 16. So how many years ago? I can't even count that far back. Um Strangely enough, I was, uh, I had seen a movie, a little movie called The Exorcist. And I oh, wow. said, if that's the bad guy, I want to know the good guy. Yeah, and wow. with, within weeks, a, fr- a guy, in, a, f- a friend in high school said, hey, come on to one of our youth ministry, uh, Presbyterian, and started mm-hmm. going there and, um, and was interested in, you know, learning about the word. And my, fortunately, my dad had a whole library of books. He had, he had loaned friends uh, some money. And they gave him like this whole like 50, 100 books all about the Bible, uh, William Barclay, <laughs> Verna Keller, very in-depth stuff. Um, and wow. I just started reading it all. I was a very avid reader. And so I was lucky enough to be an inheritor of that. And then my dad also I was interested in, we started going to church and I got baptized as a Christian at 16. Wow. Right on. Yeah. I had my own experience with the exorcist as a child. <laughs> um, so it's funny that we have that in common because that, uh, um, yeah, that, that's uh, that's a dark, dark movie. That's right. a movie that no child should be watching. But um, yeah, that's interesting. That's part of your testimony. But, uh, that, that's neat. Um, cool. So you, you've written this book. Uh, the topic of our discussion today is going to be fish tales. Um, tell us a little bit about the premise of you know what is the book and what inspired you to write this book. Well, again, yeah, the fish tale. It's, it's a lengthy one, right? To give an idea to the uh, the audience. So it's called Fish Tales in the Belly of the Whale. 50 of the greatest misconceptions ever blamed on the Bible um, because, and I, I, t- I titled that because I was always uh, uh, distressed as a Christian, uh, as an intellectual, I guess you could say, and you talk to yeah. people intellectually and they yeah. say, you can't believe in the Bible. There's too many contradictions. There's too many historical anomalies, you know, uh, anti-Semites and anti-Catholics and all the wars. And I was intrigued. I said, well, what is it about God's word that has created this sort of chain reaction of, of, of wars and, and, and anti this and anti that. I mean, the Bible's kind of, you know, a pretty straightforward book. Jesus died, Jesus did, you know. So, because Christianity is very historically grounded, unlike many of the other religions that are philosophical and ethical, Christianity yeah. talked about, you know, an event, uh, the resurrection that could be, you know, uh, verified historically, uh, the personage of Jesus. So, I said, what is it about the word? And so I, what I really discovered about it by studying it uh, is that but the Bible is very ambiguous. And I thought, well, is God, is, certainly God knows that. <laughs> so uh, yeah. what, is, what is it about the ambiguity? For example, uh, I have an opening quotation I like to mention from the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel. 
where Jesus talked about the son of man being delivered into the hands of men and they would kill him and after three days he'd rise. But of course, the disciples didn't understand a word he was saying, but they, of course, they were too afraid to ask. So you notice right off the bat, Jesus didn't say I. He spoke in terms of symbolism and, and, uh, and image, imagery and these, these labels that are in the Bible that we now assume we know what they are because we, we say, oh, the son of man is Jesus, right? You know, and so even though they were the disciples, we should really identify with the disciples and say, you know what? We don't know. We're, we're, we're just as clueless as they were. And instead of acting all, you know, arrogant, like, well, we know who it is. No, let's just identify, you know, he spoke ambiguously. Um, and then he, then, then when they were uh, going along, they, he said, um, what were you discussing on the way here? And he said, well, they didn't want to talk about it because uh, they were basically saying, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus then says, part two of Fishtails, he says, if anybody wants to be first, he has to be first, last and servant of all. So now you have what, they, what I would call paradox, the unique nature of the Bible. The, the deepest truths of the Bible are paradoxical. So if you have ambiguity based into the, into the Bible, and then you have paradox, it's very easy to misconstrue those. So now you have, this, this is sort of the basis of all these denominational arguments. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to, to talk, you know, to take this idea and do a kind of a countdown of all these different arguments of the Bible and just sort of try to rescue because there's so much, so many people have like essentially use the Bible as a, as a weapon, right? Weapon mm -hmm. against minorities, a weapon against uh, women, mm -hmm. a we weapon against animals, right? Because it's in the yeah. Bible. And, right. um, and or a weapon against each other, right? And so, yeah. and then the, the final piece of that puzzle was uh, they said, the next thing they say, Jesus, we saw this guy uh, driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't with us. Now imagine mm -hmm. these disciples are with Jesus. They know they're with the guy. So, they yeah. are, now, so they're gonna assume that the other guy is not okay. And what does Jesus tell him right off? He says, well, don't stop him because no one performs a miracle in my name can turn around and speak evil of me for whoever is not against us is for us. For us, yeah. So there, um, imagine how many uh, wars could have been ended historically if someone had just quoted Mark, ch the ninth chapter, and said, "Hey, come on, you guys. The Catholics aren't against us. The the, the Jews aren't against us. You know, the the Presbyterians aren't against us. The Baptists aren't against us. They're, we're all we're all on the same team." Right. So I said, "Somebody's got to write a book and and figure out." And then we all love countdowns. So I said, that's the other thing too. I can get very long-winded. So I said, you know, I don't want to be long-winded because my last book, my first book was Tales of Forever, 500 pages. People yeah. said, my God, that's too long. So I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call your bluff. I'm going to write 50 songs, 50 countdowns that are maybe seven to eight essay, pages of an essay and just yeah. do 50 through the first and try to create some order out of it. But again, just give time uh, for people to pause. Say pause, Kent, oh, pause, 50. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I love the concept of the book, and I, I sort of felt that when I when I first saw it, you know, as someone that is also intellectual in my thinking, I I have just a very critical mind uh, and very curious mind, and so anytime I read something in the Bible that, that would kind of cause someone to like raise their eyebrow, I, I don't ever push that off. I always want to dig in deeper and say, well, what exactly is this all about? And that's really what you did in this book, I felt like, was get at some of those major misconceptions that a lot of people make, some of these passages or verses that people find problematic, um, and you, you just kind of face them head on. And so it, it's really, it's, a, it's, it's almost like a, an apologetic or a defense um, and, and I love that. And it's also, like you said, it's very concise. You, you get through 50 misconceptions in, in one volume 
um, or one series. And, uh, and so it's one of those things where as a Christian like myself that, that has those questions, um, you, know, you can pick this up and it's a great resource to kind of jump to those topics that are of your interest. And also, it's also a tool to share with a, a non-believer that, as you said, someone that would use this as a weapon that says, okay, well, you know, I, I can't believe in Christianity because of these verses or these misconceptions that I have, or these things that I've heard, these things that are in the Bible. Um, and this is a, a great tool to say, okay, well, you know, let me, let me give you something to read that's short, concise, and will, will really uh, explain, um, you know, why that's in the Bible um, or why this is a misconception. Um, I also really loved, I didn't prep you for this question, but I also really loved the, the cover. So I'm going to sort of flash mm -hmm. that. Um, I wish I could like you know, have a more, a better way to actually show that. Um, I love the cover of, of, of the book too. So uh, where did that come from? Well, uh, in the interest of um, copyright as an independent uh, producer, publisher, I, you know, you always look for, I love images of the ages, right? The great artists, mm -hmm. because again, one of the, uh, one of the great things about Christianity is there's, it's not just us today. We're not, it's not like a, a, a fad. This has been going on for centuries, thousands of years, and, and even pre-Christian, right? Because the way the dovetail, the way the Old Testament is, is unfolded in the new, and the New Testament is actually infolded in the old. So you have mm -hmm. all, this, all these images. And again, I loved the idea of, of the Bible is not just a one episode thing. Jesus didn't just suddenly show up and die. There were actually dramas in the Old Testament about Jonah and the belly of the whale. There was yeah. dramas of Isaac being offered by, by Abraham as a type of, of the son. So yeah. for me, the great artists of the ages, Caravaggio and Rembrandt, you know, we all know, right? So all these images are, are there in the library of history. And so all my book covers, uh, I love to grab these images that show, again, the dramatic aspect of the Bible, which is, again, it's ultra language or it's beyond language because I, I don't want to just say, well, you know, God speaks English. Well, he speaks English. Well, God speaks Hebrew. Well, he speaks Hebrew, but he actually speaks in universal terms mathematically and symbolically throughout the Bible. And that was where I thought, man, this is, we got to do a universal message for all mankind to let people know that, that it's not America versus this, this country or that language, you know what I mean? So I've always been drawn to these, these beautiful images, like, again, in this case, Jonah and the belly of the well served two purposes. One, it was, again, a, a, an example of God speaking dramatically and sort of ambiguously, because uh, we don't really know what that means, right? But a lot of people say, well, you can't believe in the Jonah and the whale. But Jesus, yeah, yeah. but Jesus bought into it. He, he told that story. So if he yeah, told that yeah. story, we better take a second look at it. And then it also serves as a kind of, uh, again, the idea of fishtails, because the, essentially the meaning of a fishtail, as we all know, our friends go fishing. They come back with a whopper of a story. They say, my God, you can't believe what I, what I. And so that's really what the, I thought. This is kind of what, what, the, what people do with the Bible. They take the truth of the Bible, they mm -hmm. excise it. And this is the important thing. I call, I call it the three laws of disinformation. There, the, there's the latch, the isolate, and the repeat. You take a verse of scripture that's so close, like say money is the root of all evil, which really doesn't say it, it says the love of money, but you, you excise it out of the, the context, then you repeat it for centuries, and you've got a great misconception. So the, the, the latch, the isolate, and the repeat. And so the fishtails was the image of Jonah coming out of the way was like the, the, yeah. the biggest fishtail of all, right? Can you believe that story? <laughs> no, yeah, well. But uh, so it's, it's, it has all those different double meanings for me, at least. 
Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I, I love that. I love the title. I love how you, you name each misconception as, well, you have, you know, three, you separate into three volumes, which you call reels. Um, mm-hmm. And so you had all these different fishtails. Um, oh. And then, of course, the cover, it just immediately, I was just immediately drawn in. As soon as I saw the cover and as soon as I saw the concept, I was like, this, this is awesome. So I'm so glad to be sitting with you and have a chance to, to kind of go through them. Um, Cool. So that's what we're going to do. We're, you know, we're, we don't have time to go through all 50 misconceptions, but we're going to go through, uh, if, you know, a few of these fish tales, and um, we'll, we'll just have you kind of talk, uh, you know, about the fish tales and, 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 and where, where the truth is. So um, we'll, we'll try to get through as many as we can. Uh, cool. So we'll, we'll start, uh, if, if you're ready to go, we'll start with the Tower of Babel. Um, before the Tower of Babel, everyone spoke just one language. That is uh, for sure uh, one of those things that I have always heard, um, never really questioned it, um, and o- almost to the point where I read it, e- even in the story, I thought, okay, so that was one thing that I, I, I needed to jump in and read it, because that was, uh, even to this day, something I had always, um, always thought and believed, and uh, so, so tell me a little bit about that. Well, for me, it was the classic opener as far as the, uh, the you know, like I say, the hook, line, and the sinker, because it's one of those Bible verses that, uh, or Bible ideas that can really be rescued just by putting it back in context. Because um, we all grew up hearing the story of the, the single language, and everybody didn't have different languages until they, uh, God struck, struck him at the Tower of Babel. But really what we have is, is a, a story that was actually used sort of as a, um, almost as a um, way to explain how the languages came to be. So I thought, well, here's, here's a nice try, right? You know, trying to, you know, trying to be explanatory of our, of our origins as an origin story of language. But at the same time, I thought, you know, again, well, people question it. Like, you know, scientifically they say, that's kind of silly, you know? Well, what about all these other civilizations and stuff? So I thought, um, we gotta, we gotta somehow pay attention to the Bible. So if you read the very first, the, the verse, the chapter, I should say before. So you had the 11th chapter talking about the Tower of Babel and the, and the languages being split up, but the very f- chapter before it, it says basically that all the, uh, all the sons of uh, Noah were already talking in their own language. So for example, it's saying here, uh, by these, the eyes of the Gentiles were divided, every one of them after their own tongue, after their own families and their own nations, right? The sons of Ham, the sons of Cush, the sons of... Uh, you know, everybody talking their own language. So it was like, wow. So all you have to do is take a typical verse that leads itself into a kind of a far-fetched story of how we got all these languages, but it's completely disassembled just by reading the verse ahead of it. And I yeah. thought, wow, that's got to be a great, you know, this is a clue, right? People, let's <laughs> context. Have you ever heard the saying that text without context is error? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I said, then this was the thing I wanted to end with, though, on that note. So I said, if, if, if the Bible didn't give us this idea of one language becoming many, what could have caused us to think that? And so I said, imagine the idea of the Age of Enlightenment, when, when a history was sort of rebelling against the, the medieval Catholicism, where the Bible was almost shut up, right, in Latin. Mm. We didn't, in a yeah. lay person, they didn't really know it. Yeah. And, and here were these ideas of evolution, right? What does evolution say from the, from the simple to the more complex, from the one to the many. So I said, could it have been that, that these biblical scholars back in the day were basically taking the, this idea of progressive uniformitarianism and stamping it on the Bible instead of letting the Bible speak for itself? As in, again, mm-hmm. from the from the one to the many, 
even though if you read the Bible itself, it completely, uh, completely undermines this idea that, that before the Tower of Babel, we were all speaking one language because clearly the Bible says uh, the opposite. So I just, I try to always explain, like if the Bible didn't really say this, how did we come to this misconception? So I have the sort of, I take the text, the context, put it back in the context, and then sort of do a quick brief analysis of how it is that we might've, you know, why this mis misconception has, and I'm always saying too, by the way, I don't blame it on individual, I don't blame it on denominations. I don't blame it on mm -hmm. uh, sectarians. I don't say this is a Catholic thing. I don't say this is a Presbyterian thing. Yeah. I say, you know what it is? It's actually a human heart thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's, the, it's us wanting to believe, you know, fear of change and uh, fear of questioning things and just taking the status quo and then just, uh, you know, repetition, you know, repetition, repetition, we start believing stuff. And then if you question it, you're now you're an oddball. Yeah, yeah I'm, so, I'm so glad you said that. And you're right, this is the perfect opener because as you read through, one of the things that as I read through, you find you can disprove a lot of these very easily just by going into the word and just reading it um, in, in the context for what it says. And it's like you said, you read some of these and you think, man, wow, uh, how is it that, that this is so widely believed uh, when it so plainly says otherwise in the word? And so hopefully this, uh, you know, can spur people on that uh, you can't just believe a tradition because that's what you've been taught. And that's what who you've been taught by was taught by the, the person that came before them, or this is because that's what everyone in your church believes or your denomination believes. Uh, I, you know, like, like you said, it really comes down to the individual to, to, to read the word, um, you know, with fresh eyes, as opposed to just reading it like, oh, I've heard the story a million times. And let me just kind of gloss over it. You know, I, I you know, because for a lot of Christians, that's really what it is. It's, they, they were taught this in Sunday school. They, they, I've heard these stories over and over and over again. We sort of just take it for granted um, rather than, than really reading the word like, like a treasure, right? And, and trying to uh, get out everything that we can from it. Um, so uh, it, was, it was encouraging um, and it, it was nice to kind of get into some of these misconceptions and sort of think about all of these things that uh, that some of it I thought a lot about and some of it I haven't, but it's really cool. Uh, this next one is one that I really, really love. And I've actually done like a partial episode on it with Terry James. Um, only humans get into heaven. Sorry, no pets allowed. Yes. And I will preface that with a final word on which we were just describing about being afraid that if you re if you relearn the Bible or don't believe a, a certain truth that you've been taught all your life, will I be won't I be rejecting the Bible? Mm. And I and my comment in that in that last chapter, of course, is no, you won't be rejecting the Bible if you simply allow it to fill in the missing pieces of the puzzle on its own. Because yeah. it's imperative that we come to a fuller understanding of this subject because so many faith, people's faith are depending on a genuine right. awareness of what the scriptures say, not merely a half-baked version of them. So yeah. as I said, so that's this again, context and context. Same thing happens with this idea of this overemphasis of, of the idea of say, well, to get into heaven, you have to have faith. Okay, that makes sense. How do, and so how do animals have faith in the same way that, that, that a, a person can? So on the surface, that sounds logical, but as I say, uh, but then you're not looking at the Bible as a whole because from the very beginning, when God created the animals in the first place, he basically said that it isn't good for man to be alone, so I'll make companions for them. And he said, out of the ground, God formed every animal. 
And it just so happens that the word for ground in the Hebrew is Adama. So according to Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, the root is Adama, which means ground, of course. So, you know, how ironic is that? Is the biblical word for the material that God used for these companions for humanity is actually a derivative of the word for Adam himself. And I said, now, could this possibly be why scientists were able to discover a link between the biology of the human and animal kingdoms that is so essential in the ongoing search for cures to disease? And could this connection between humans and animal genetics explain why the theory of evolution is so irresistible to the scientific right. community? Imagine that, the Bible just speaking for itself and letting you know that the animals were created out of, out of Adama, right? So that's, that, was enough, that was like, wow, okay, no wonder God said when he created everything, he, he, he said it was good and is in everything. Yeah. Uh, we, also, we also have Paul's teaching on every living creature waits expectantly for the manifestation of the children of God, seeing yeah. as how even the animals were made subject to pride. I mean, this is, this is the Bible, folks. Animals yeah. and, and animals are part of the manifestation of the children of God. So if we're going to heaven, yeah, let's use some, you know, some stretching and some, some logic. Because they were not subjected uh, in, the, in, the, in this madness. They were, they were basically delivered. Into, they said, but it, because every creature will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of God's family. So um, I thought that was pretty amazing. So, uh, and then, of course, if we also rejected the, the role of animals, we'd have to throw out some chapters in the Bible that were pretty unique, like uh, Eve talking to a serpent. Mm-hmm. Or Balaam talking to his donkey. And so we can't say that these animals, you know, um, animals are, are below humans if we believe the Bible. And this is where, again, the Bible becomes sort of, this is where you, this is where the scientists say, well, this is why we don't believe in, in the Old Testament anymore. Or even why Christians will say, that's why we really don't believe in Old Testaments or their old wives' tales. So then I say, well, you've heard the book of Revelation, haven't you? Sure. Well, have you ever noticed the four living creatures in the presence of God, the, 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 the angel, angelic beings that look like a man and an ox and a beast and, a, you know, and then the lion and the eagle? And did, did you ever notice how much talking that they're doing? And they're like, wait a second, what? So remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Sure. They come out one at a time. The, the rider on the white horse, well, who, who actually calls them forth onto the stage of history? These living creatures saying, come, one by one, come, come, come. And I thought, well, that's, again, pretty interesting. And, uh, and I said, so is there really such a huge difference between animals and angels then? If there are this, this, these, this, these creatures are in heaven together. And I said, is this also maybe why one is not just like a lion, not just like one like, like a bull, one's not just like an eagle, but the other one, the fourth one is like a man. So again, this, this, this biblical sanctioning of the uniqueness of animals even though people say you can't get into heaven unless you have faith and then sort of then the final one of course would be the the idea of of the the other event that's everybody knows about this is the this is my favorite thing about the bible how many things have we read in the bible that that when you point by point them out in fishtails it completely goes over their head they go wow we've been hearing that for centuries but we don't really hear it so yeah. for example when, when Jesus talks about coming back on the white horse and the saints are riding with them on white horses, yeah. I'm like going, are those ghosts or those phantoms? No, those are, those are somehow, I mean, are, there, are those people ghosts too? This is one of my other things, you know, Jesus had a body. He went to, he ascended to the father, he came back. He has a body. He didn't check out his body, right? Yeah. He now has, he has an immortal body. He has a, I would call it a, 
uh, like in like in science fiction terms, I'd call it a um, um, an interdimensional body because he'd walk through doors and walls and so on and so forth. Well, that's the body that the saints are going to have when they're riding back on the horses, and so we have real horses, yeah. you know. And again, I, I then ended the the, the whole storyline with again the Passover lamb. If the Passover lamb in the in the Exodus they they put the blood on the door from the lamb. The animals also, the firstborn animals were spared along with the firstborn humans. Yes. So again, if, and if the blood of Jesus is the fulfillment of the type of that blood of the Passover lamb, how much more is the blood of Christ going to rescue the whole household? And our household is, is not just, not just, not just the guy that put the blood on the door, you know, they say, well, you're not going to rescue your animal. God rescued all the animal, firstborn animals and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of it. And on again, I get very poetic and, and I don't even want to go into it because I'll probably cry because I love animals and I love the innocence of them. And um, I'll let you read the book on, on that. So it's, yeah. it's all there. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that fishtail because, you know, we, we all love our pets um, and we just kind of adopt this idea that, oh, I, I you know, I, I guess that, that it's just heaven's not for them. And I love how you brought it back to creation and, you know, they, they are his creation. He said that they were good. And, and the, him saving the firstborn, you know, I, you approach it from an angle I've never heard before. I've kind of looked into this topic, but I've never heard that. And that um, it is very poetic that, uh, that yes, he, he not only saved um, the human firstborn, but the, the animals too. So it's a uh, really cool. Uh, next, Jesus was just a poor carpenter's son before his real ministry began. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Classic, classic story. Uh, everybody loves a great rags to riches story. So what better way to attract attention to the life of Jesus, right? by plugging his story into the tried and true plot line, right? Jesus born of a poor, humble family, searching for a place to have, you know, have a birth. He, he, uh, the continuing of the story is dad dies. He follows in the footsteps of age. His father becomes a carpenter. And uh, basically then he, he meets John the Baptist and he's then anointed the lowly carpenter, or he, he, goes, he goes from being the lowly carpenter to the newly instated king of Israel. Wow, yeah. you know, even Hollywood can't make that story up, right? Of course, the problem is it's not quite like that in the Bible, right? Because we know, for example, that Joseph and Mary came to Augusta, uh, came to uh, Jerusalem in the first place by a decree uh, by Augustus Caesar to pay their taxes. Now, of course, uh, poor people don't worry about paying taxes. They're, you know, no one's going to miss their taxes. Uh, it turns out, as we all recall, you know, that Joseph and Mary were both born of the kingly line of the house of Judah through David, through Pharaohs. So, we all know that because we know that the, the wise men came to Herod seeking the king who was born. So how could the king of Israel born? Now, of course, they were displaced, like all royalty were, you know, was at the time, through, especially through Israel, being that they were dominated by the Roman Empire at the time. But this is all part of God's decree, right? From the time that they had been carried off into Babylon through Persia, you know, through Greece and through Rome, they were dominated by these, these beastly kingdoms as a, as a, uh, basically a type of them being outside of God's plan now, right? So, but even then, we also have the Bible saying that uh, even before Jesus died, that Joseph was a, not just a carpenter, but he was a, the Greek says tecton, which means architect or master builder, okay? Which means that he wasn't just skilled at building furniture, because wood is pretty scarce item in a desert like Palestine. We know that everything was pretty much built with stone, stone temples, yeah, stone, stone this, stone that, stone wells, you know, and so really what happens is, is you then have, not only do you have these two aspects of him being a, a the son of a tecton, as opposed to a carpenter, him being born of royalty, 
we have when he when Joseph dies, the father, he then is taken over as the, the parentage or the, the tutelage, I should say, of Mary's brother, right? Joseph Arimathea. We all know about Joseph Arimathea, but one of those hidden aspects of Joseph was that he was a very wealthy man. He was known as noblest decorum by the uh, by the Romans, which was a, a title where he was a, a, a in charge of the British tin uh, industry. And so history has it, hidden history, by the way, this is the, sort of the lost years of Jesus. We all have heard about where did he go? Well, there's more evidence that actually he went to Britain with his uh, uncle, Joseph, and became a tin miner. That's why uh, William Blake, uh, you know, they had that song about Jerusalem and uh, did these feats in, in ancient times, trod, you know, the pastures green, right? The story of Jesus as a boy in, um, in, in Britain. Hmm. And so that was there that he actually built the first church above ground dedicated to his mother. And of course, you can't do that if you're just, you know, hammering wood. Yeah. He also spoke of the uh, being the chief cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So for a guy who's, you know, who's who's being told he's a carpenter, he's sure talk, you know, he he has a lot of talk about about stones. He even said that when the Pharisees got angry at the people praising him, he said, if they didn't praise me, even the stones would cry out. Well, guess what? A lot of scholars actually allude to the fact that the stones that are crying out to the to the to the lordship of Jesus Christ, not just a bunch of rocks on a hill somewhere, but it's actually speaking in veiled terms of the greatest megalithic monument ever built, which just happens to be the Great Pyramid of Giza, which has been demonstrated by more than three and a half centuries of scholarship to contain a biblically inspired timeline in prophetic history, said Joseph Seiss, the numerical values and the dimensions of the Great Pyramid's construction with its geometric proportions speak as loudly as stones can be made to speak wow. so there's stones speaking how are they speaking they're speaking symbolically mathematically and universally and of course wow. yeah and then as i said and so you can't do all that stuff unless you're uh you know you have a chief cornerstone you have a temple made of stone you've got stones crying out their praise to the savior and and then he talked about the stones of the city being overturned so you know it, it, again the context is overwhelming that uh jesus is more about stone than he ever was about wood yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that, uh, yeah, once I read that, it's like, oh, of course, it, it, it is really obvious. But um, sure enough, you look mm -hmm. at the, you know, the, the Bible stories with the pictures and he's there. It's mm -hmm. almost you just picture in your mind someone in a in a shed. It's a great story. Wood making a rocking chair or something. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's definitely not not the case. Uh, so I love that. Um, well, he's humble. Jesus is supposed to be humble. Right. That's the whole idea. So yeah. these ideas have taken over and then artists have sort of taken dramatic licenses, they say, you know, right. in, in the best interest, as I say. So yeah. I say, it's not, I'm not really against them. I'm just more about really, again, convincing people when they say, how can you believe in this stuff? You know, it's all contradictory. And, and um, I'm like, no, there's a way to actually uncontradict it, if I could make up a word like that. Yeah. Uh, Jesus was born on December 25th. No way. <laughs> so that's the other thing about these. When you read these, uh, you have to remember everything's in the reverse. So if you just open up the book and you read Jesus was born on December 25th, you may think I'm actually saying, oh, yeah, he really was. Well, actually, not quite. But I do have to remind people that whereas I as there's a lot, there's enough scholarly evidence to prove that he wasn't. The key is I'm not a Christmas basher. I, I'm not oh, this. No, you know, of course not. Not a, I'm not. A, and this is the most my favorite time of the year when I yeah. feel normal, because now everybody's yeah. singing about Jesus, the son of God, the son of man. The reconciliation of mankind. I now I can literally every day for 30 days be normal. 
So I'm not, I'm not saying we should skip the criticism. I'm saying we need to realize that it got moved, right, in the interest of, of, of furthering the movement and, and then also erasing. Same thing happened in the old days when they would, they would uh, tear down a, a, a temple of, of Anathoth or something, you know, and, the, and then they would build a new temple to Jehovah or something, or they would take over yeah, a, right. a, a, an Islamic temple and they'd build it to Christ, whatever. Same old story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's the context. So I'm not like to say, so anybody that's reading my chapter has said, first of all, I am the number one Christmas guy, right? So don't take any of my remarks as me, just some like bah humbug, you know, that type right. of guy. No, that's not me. Yeah. Um, but what I'm doing, I am saying though, of course, is again, is what happens, what about the kids that are asking questions about the, the anomalies of mangers in the snow <laughs> and shepherds <laughs> in the snow? You know, what about the kids? Because if, yeah. if you just tell the kids, well, you just got to believe it. You just got to believe, I got to have faith. That is the most obnoxious, dastardly thing you can tell people. You just got to have faith. Like this, that's a, that would have been another misconception that I could have written about that blind faith is faith because that is the most, yeah, that is yeah. the most absurd thing. We have faith because we, we see God doing stuff. We have faith. We have faith in the same way we have faith with our friends and our family. You don't, you don't have faith. People earn faith, you know? So God has earned our trust, you know? And, and, but the problem is, is that whereas we are trying to learn if God can be trusted, really God's really trying to figure out, can we be trusted? Because really we can't be trusted. You know what I mean? God can be trusted, but you know, but that's not, again, those are other subjects all together, little sidebars. But it, the, the purpose of this chapter though, is just to point out the anomalies between what we've grown up with and how we can rescue the baby from the bathwater. You've heard that term where, you know, throwing yeah, out the yeah. baby, you know, so let's not do that. Okay. Because we do have a huge suspension of disbelief when we talk about shepherds, in the snow okay so yeah. um so and the key is really comes down to again is the people that because it's not just us some people will say you know it really doesn't matter I, i'm a christian it doesn't really matter when he was born it just matters that he was born and then he died okay but the christianity is not just about us it's about right. our friends and our family because our job and this is the other weird strange aspect of a of a, of a all-powerful god who has literally limited himself to his chosen right he He's the omnipotent God, but he chooses men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then and then Paul and John and, and David and all these different characters. He's limited himself. So we do have to take the responsibility to be part of that communication process. We can't just leave yeah. it to God. We can't just say, well, I'm I, I'm a Christian. I'm cool. No, right. other people are going to come along and say, what about these contradictions? You have yeah. to explain them. No, I don't have to explain anything. These types of, you know, these these freedom these like lone wolf christians right they don't really care i i you know so what we were really dealing with is the problem is is there are so many other saviors that actually has fully have died on the december 25th we need to separate the these many dying and rising saviors like samiramis who was the the the, the um the wife of nimrod we all heard of nimrod again you know the tower she had a little story where after nimrod was dead for many years that she got pregnant and she made up the story that the sunbeam had come down to her and the, that was Nimrod. And then she became uh, pregnant with Tammuz, right? So then Tammuz became the, like the birth of the sun god. And this sun god mythology, and, and it, when was he born? December 25th on the, on the so-called calendar. But not only did we have uh, Tammuz being born on that day, there was Horus of Egypt, Mithra of Persia, Dionysus of Greece, and Bacchus of Rome. Well, all these supposedly born at the same time of the year and all associated with with legends that spoke of their having been resurrected from the dead. Why were these all there in the first, excuse me, in the first place, pardon me. 
Uh, first of all, because uh, Satan had been hearing about this legend of the mythology, I guess you could call it the myth of the myth of the the, the son of God that was always the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, right? So there was always this myth, these, this story of the um, the Christ becoming human, and so the devil he can't beat it, so he has to join it. So it comes up with all these other dying and rising heroes like uh, false uh, Isaacs and false you know uh, Jonas and so on and so forth just to kind of uh, to obscure the idea that when Jesus comes along, he's just one among many. Yeah. So my, my theory was the only way to sort of, uh, to, to, to not, instead of destroying Christmas as, you know, completely just separate the birth of Jesus at December 25th, find out when he was really born. And yeah. it actually turns out that the, that the chronology, there's a chronology in the book of Luke that gives us that chronology because it talks about the birth of, of uh, his cousin, John, who was in the days of uh, Zechariah, his father was serving in the course of Abijah. So according to the custom of his priestly office, he was at that time burning incense in the temple when an angel appeared to him, announcing that his barren wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a child who they were to name John. Then six months later, God sent the ga uh, angel Gabriel to Nazareth and told uh, Joseph about uh, Mary being born. So, and he says, see how your cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She who is now in her sixth month of pregnancy, all this to the one they used to call barren because with God, nothing is impossible. So thanks to Luke's numerical values, basically what we can do is because according to Jewish scholars, the priestly period of Abijah occurred sometime between mid-June and early July, which would place the conception of Jesus approximately six months later. What that would mean conception occurred sometime mid, you know, his conception would be during mid-December, early January. Thus, John would have been born sometime mid-March and early April. That Jesus mm -hmm. would have been born six months after that, sometime between mid-September, the onset of the fall of the year, early October. But so basically, we're talking around like the end of September, October, which, by the way, September 29th is, by the way, the birth date as depicted in the chronology of the Great Pyramid of Giza. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. Oh, wow. wow. So it's all, you know, there are many, many ways of disproving that Jesus was not born on December 25th, and thereby he's not one among many of these dying and rising heroes. And um, it just shows you another one of the aspects of you take the truth of the Bible, and then you take it out of context, and then you repeat it often enough, and then people yeah. will believe anything. Yeah, you're right. And you know, a lot of people, they have that idea, but I love that you brought up children because so many times, you know, I, I teach Sunday school, I have a young daughter and they are, they're not indoctrinated, right? Mm -hmm. So you're reading these stories for the first time and they're, sometimes they're the best ones that are coming at the best questions uh, <laughs> that we don't have answers to. And it, it is our responsibility to, uh, to give them sound biblical answers if you don't have those i think i said it's it is appropriate thing to say i don't know let me let me try to find that out for you rather than just ah because you know I, I got some of those answers when i was a kid i was asking those questions and it was very, it's very frustrating uh to get that sort of answer you feel like um okay and it, it, it doesn't really do much for for your for building faith when you feel like those that are teaching you um you know are building like on a house of cards right where it's like well do you even know what you're talking about so uh, I, I agree I love, I love that you said that um next Jesus never answered Pilate's question what is truth mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're talking probably one of the most uh, obvious questions from the one who was born what did he say I came into this world to testify to the truth and somebody asked him what is truth and according to the canonical record 
he doesn't ask the question. I always had my head kind of scratching. It's like, so you got the you got the face off the century. Are you really the king of the Jews? You know, Pilate asks, who wants to know? You ask it for yourself or, you know, what? You think I'm a Jew, says Pilate? You know, so there's this back and forth thing that leads up to them saying truth. You know, tell me then, what is truth? Because he, he just says it here. There he says, he says, are you or are you not the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, there you've said it. Even as you speak it, you know it's true. You say, I'm a king because the sole reason for which I was born, which was to, I came into this world to bear witness to the truth and everyone is who is of the truth, hears my voice. So obviously, perfect time to say, okay, well, what is truth then? It's then that the canonical record becomes strangely silent. And I'm like, okay, so wait a second, what just happened? Uh, the guy who was born into the world for truth refused to answer Pilate's question of truth. Does that even make sense? <laughs> pause You're yeah, right. no, yeah i'm stressed right, no. too that interests me you have to say sure so but uh we're back to again the context we're back to the part where um we assume that, that the the god of 66 books we assume that the god of american protestantism is the only god that speaks and we come to find out there's actually our other source materials for example before the reformation there was a very popular book called the gospel of nicodemus Remember Nicodemus who came by night to ask Jesus about, about stuff. And he, and he, and you know, how do I, how do I get into the program? And he said, you got to be born again. That's another one of our misconceptions that we'll talk about in just a little bit. And uh, in this, this book, interesting book, it's called Acts of Pontius Pilate. It was actually sort of really about Pilate actually being put on trial for, for actually trying to defend Jesus. Why? Because he washed his hands saying that this man is guilty of no crime and again, people just say, well, we just take the Western Protestant view of that scene. And we say, of course, Pilate was just a bad guy. Well, he certainly wasn't a good guy, but he did have the sense to realize something's, something's fishy. I, 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 under, I know black man when I see it, right? But anyway, that's another subtext of this, of this story. The point being is, is in this Gospel of Nicodemus, there's actually an alternate version of the same story that almost word for word, except when it, he asks what is truth, the story continues. Right. It's almost like, uh, you know, a Reader's Digest version or something compared to this other version. And then the story continues. You're like, whoa, hey, that's cool. Um, so when he, he says to Pilate, what is truth? Jesus says, well, truth is from heaven. OK, disappointed somewhat. Pilate says, so truth is not of the earth. Then is that what you're telling me? Because, uh, that you know, that's pretty much what he would have thought, seeing the things he saw, all, all the barbarism and all the, the, the negative you know, evil in the world of time, he's pretty much saying, truth, there's no truth on the earth. And Jesus, of course, says, yeah, don't be so sure of yourself. You know, truth does exist on the earth. That is, it does for those who are governed by truth and who make decisions because of that truth. Okay. Now that sounds like a, a, the Jesus I, I know, sly, subtle, but sure of himself and giving, actually giving an answer that he's not afraid, uh, ashamed of, right? So basically I had to ask the question is if, if that was in the Bible, why did John leave it out of his version completely? So like I said before, I was saying, you know, when, when you put things back in context, you kind of go, aha, okay. But then you have to ask yourself, well, how did it, well, how did tradition become what we now know of it as being where Jesus didn't actually answer the, uh, the question, what is truth? So my theory is, and again, you could take it or leave it, but I say, I, you know, if Jesus, if Jesus, okay, if John tells a story He's essentially putting Pilate in the place of all of us, right? So we're, we're all in Pilate's place. Basically, we're, as he asked, asked that question, we're also asking it. Problem is, though, when Jesus gave the answer, 
the truth is on the word, and it's and and you and if you're governed by truth, you'll make the right decision. Did did Pilate make any right decisions based on the truth that he heard from Jesus? No. So essentially, it's like a parent, you know, who's tired of the kid asking the obvious questions. He, you know, he asked the question like the guy in Rebel Without a Cause or something asked the question. He doesn't take it to heart, you know. And so for people that don't actually respond to the truth, it's almost like basically you didn't even hear it. You didn't even, it's like the question never even got asked. So the point being is though, is we really can no longer uh, entertain the idea because for us, when you listen to the story, it really looks like Jesus really didn't care enough about Pilate or anybody to answer, the, answer that question. So it leaves me with kind of like, gee, Jesus really didn't care enough to answer the question. But if you put, the, if you really realize that he did answer the question, but that because Pilate didn't take it to heart, and that as a type of us who don't take it to heart, like a parent and a, and, a, and a teenager, but if you don't act on it, it's like you never even, you know, heard the question or heard the answer. So I said, so basically for those who don't act on the answer, the answer doesn't exist. And that's yeah. why I think that, I think that's why John left it out because he knew that like Pilate, we generally speaking, are not, you're not going to, you know, respond to the fact that there is truth on the earth. But we have to we have to respond to the truth, and it's so much easier to just go, "Whoa, I'm I'm out of here." Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great takeaway. I like that kind of analysis as far as why it's not in there. Um, and of course, like you said, you, people can take that or leave that. But you know, I think it's it's really really interesting. Um, you know, even if you don't, um, you know, a lot of people will really start to get testy when you look at some of those pseudo-apocryphal books, but they're, you know, they're, they're historical books. Take, take, take them really, we, lo- we read a lot of history. Um, it doesn't have to be like inspired, um, you know, and be on, on the level of scripture to, to still be, you know, a, a valid, uh, you know, piece of history. So I, uh, I well, thought especially, that really especially got to point this out because again, remember I said, when you're a Protestant, Western Protestant, for three or 400 years since the Reformation, you had to remind yourself to not get so full of yourself to make yourself think that uh, for 16 centuries or so, the Gospel of Nicodemus was actually part of the Roman Catholic uh, literature and it affected yeah, uh, yeah. Dante's, uh, you know, Dante's co- Divine Comedy. It, uh, de- it depicted, uh, you know, so for 16 centuries, it, you would have been you would have been thought crazy if you didn't think that the gospel right. of Nicodemus wasn't canonical. So you've got to get historically minded because as they say, those who do not study history are like men and women without eyes and ears. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Um, all right. All right. All right. Uh, the story of the two men in a bed, the two women at the mill, uh, but not the one of each is taken is a prophecy of the rapture. Right, but only one of each is taken. Right, the old one one is taken, one is left behind. Yeah. Of which the Left Behind series is very famous, of which mm-hmm. I grew up knowing. And as I always say, tell people, remind them, it takes one to know one. So I'm not bashing anybody who doesn't, you know, won't think like I think on many of these subjects. Because as I say, we all grew up with this. I don't know if you ever remember a very famous gospel uh, was the Christian rock movement back uh, 20, 30 years ago. Larry mm-hmm. Norman. Larry Norman had a great song. I wish we'd all been ready. Anybody can Google it and watch it on, on, on uh, excuse me, on YouTube, um, which I wish we'd all been ready, basically inspired uh, the, the Left Behind series. Really? Wow. Never heard that. of Larry Norman? Yeah, very famous. You ever heard of Christian rock back back 30 years ago, back when it was not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Not modern. It was back, it was a new I movement. Have, yeah. 
But that yeah, was yeah, when they, I, I was told, oh, you can't. That's their Christian rock is of the devil. Yeah. Okay. Been there, done that. So anyway, so yeah, so this story of the rapture, we're at the two men in the bed, which some people will even say too, if Christians, Christians are, again, I'm not a gay basher. I, I you know, I, my, I, have, <laughs> I have a lot of friends and family even. So I'm not a judger, right? So, but what, you know, people say, what are two men in the bed being, in the bed and one's taken is that is that means they're being one of those guys is being taken as a christian right you know i mean it's like that's i heard i heard a pastor tell me that's that one time i thought yeah that's pretty weird again it just shows the level though they don't really pay attention so they yeah, so yeah. they just it, you know whatever you know a, abraham lincoln they they apocryphally slept with a guy who was his good friend they said well he could have been gay no i don't get that don't even want to get into that but the point is is though it's, it's there and if you, if yeah. as a Christian, you say this is the rapture, there you got some issues if you believe it. And that, but the unique thing about the rapture, though, to me is, is not only do Christians be, uh, believe in it or talk about it, but non Christians, you know, it's HBO series, you know, they're, yeah, they're, you're right. It, it, it's a, it's a, you know, far fetched story, but the, the fact that the world is into it because it's a great story, great drama, you yeah. know, this whole idea of this catching away. And everybody's going to be driving in their car and, and cars are going to be uh, crashing and planes are going to be crashing. You know, somebody obviously believes it enough to put it on broadcast TV to, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Only problem is though, is you have the, uh, you have this catching away in the clouds and they say it's, it's, um, it's supposed to be some, I mean, obviously Paul believes in some form of it, but the problem is though, is it's really not the same event that where you have the catching away in the clouds versus the this event of the two, two, two women, one is taken, one is left. And we know this because if you read the context in the story, uh, Jesus, they asked the Jesus, where are they being taken? And of course, they he talks about the um the the eagles and the vultures, right? So, but before I get there though, I, I had to kind of I had to ask myself. Do people think I'm not going to believe in a rapture? And I'm saying, uh, well, by the way, before I answer the question about the, the vultures and the eagles and this whole thing of where they're being taken, I did want to lay down my theory of why I believe in the rapture of the church because there's a lot of controversy there. And yeah. the, way I, the way I did it, again, as I look at the Bible as a whole, God is above all, he's a God who repeats himself. And so uh, he lays down patterns of history and of his behavior in history, which is basically like a blueprint of the ages, Okay. And one of those is the way God rescues his people before disaster and judgment hit the, the scene. So the most famous scene, uh, the most famous events, of course, is Noah and his family in the great flood, you know, Moses, the Israelites, the exodus out of Egypt, and of course, Lot and his family and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have this pattern in every instance, God's rescue effort of his chosen follows a strict pattern from event to event. So uh, before the judgment hits, right, the, the, the chosen are evacuated, essentially. Now, the thing I want to point out is very important. These three examples are just the chosen of the Lord. They're just, they're just the saints. Now we're talking about the, the church being part of the rapture. Now we're talking about the body of Christ, the, the bride of Christ. So that's, a, to me, a whole other level, right? So if we all know that Jesus suffered, died once for all, once for, for everyone, which is once, that's the operative word. So now is the body of Christ going to be you know, going to be smitten again. I mean, there is the ages of the church. There's a difference between the ages of the church, the seven letters of the churches uh, in the book of Revelation that lead up to the point where then John is uh, a type of the church because 
what happens is, is before these seals are unleashed in the book of Revelation, in the first couple chapters, if you notice, they, a voice from heaven says to John, come up hither. Mm -hmm. And then the seals are unleashed. So you have, you have these, all these different aspects, the pattern, consistent pattern throughout biblical history, where the chosen are, are evacuated before the judgment. Now you have the body of Christ, which is even more special to God, I would think. And then you have John as a type being caught away before the, uh, the, the after the seven churches of Asia have run their course and before the seven uh, uh, seals are unleashed. Okay. So, but so, so if you, if you don't believe that Jesus was talking about the rapture, then, right, you believe in the rapture, but you don't think this event is the rapture. Why not? So I say again, first of all, because of the laws of disinformation, these three laws of disinformation, right? So we take this event, we slice it out of time. We repeat it over and over and over, and we leave out the part that comes after they ask in Luke's account, where are they being taken? Mm. Okay. So, so then when, when they say, uh, Jesus then says, where are they being taken? Jesus replied, wherever the bodies are, that's where the eagles will be gathered. Have you read that lately? Have you heard that in church lately? Doesn't sound like a rapture. Yeah. <laughs> so bodies, eagles, wait a second. What happened to the part about the, the meeting in the air, right? right? So clearly these are two different events. And, and, and this is the other thing too. And, and so, and this is the, the sad thing. Not only does the world think we're crazy for believing in this stuff because they're, it, it's, it's improbable to them at all already. Yeah. But now you have Christians actually doubting the fact that there might be a rapture, even though Paul says, encourage one another with these words. So how do we get encouraged about a non-event, right? How do you get encouraged about you're going through the tribulation? doesn't make right. any sense. You know, don't, don't, don't tell me to be encouraged. So there again, that, that also scripture is also taken out. So if the, if Jesus is, is predicting, if, G, if he's not predicting the rapture of the church, what are the carcasses? Uh, where, where are these carcasses and vultures, right? So uh, first of all, again, it's not the rapture. What we're dealing with, again, is just as God is faithful, God is predictable. Turns out the devil is actually just as predictable because being there, he's a copycat. He doesn't do anything on his own. Every time God reveals something, the devil must corrupt it. He did it with Christmas, right? He took the birth of Christ. He turned it into counterfeit births of saviors. He did the same thing with, believe it or not, with the Zodiac. That's another one of those uh, celestial dramas of divine redemption. We didn't, we've skipped over for the, for the uh, sake of our uh, brevity in our discussion here. But um, the, there's actually a, a story of the gospel and the stars, according to Seiss and, and Bullinger. It's a very, very hundred years in study, very, very unique study. But the devil corrupted that, couldn't beat it, so he corrupted it. So you have the same thing. So now what you've got is the devil's version of what he sees God doing. And we know this by the language of the scripture when it talks about the, this catching away or this gathering. So he's, he says, that where are these people being taken and where are they being gathered? Because if you look in the original, these bodies are not just bodies. They're actually bodies fallen in battle, which would explain why there's, they're attracting vultures. And according to Strong's, the, word, the Greek word meaning to gather comes from sunago, which not only provides the root word for the gathering described in Luke 17, but it's also the word used in Revelation as it is written. These are the demonic spirits that perform signs and go out to all the kings of the earth to gather them for the battle on the great day of the Almighty. And they gathered those kings in the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. Yeah, that's not the gathering. So again, you have a counterfeit gathering. 
again, whatever Satan sees God do, we'll, we'll talk about that over and over and again in throughout fish tales. Uh, you can also say like the mark of the beast, for example, is the mark of the beast just come out of the random blue? No. Uh, if you look in the, in the book of Revelation, God seals his 144,000 with a mark. So, but nobody sees them in context. These are all just sort of random stories and nobody's seeing them holistically or contextually, in, in my opinion. And so that's what I've done with, again, from chapter to chapter, try to do that. And this is another reason why uh, misconception number 24 is also important because the only way can I understand it is when you look at the whole Bible uh, and, and from book to book and from age to age. So, yeah, yeah this next one is huge. This is one that uh, um, a lot of people will have some pushback. Heaven, is, unlike earth, is an eternal place. Okay, well, but we, we did skip. Remember, uh, misconception 24 is the concept of being born again is found only in the New Testament. You want to know about that as well. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I, 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 know, I, no I, in my notes, I got them flip-flopped. Um, yeah. You can go there first. It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, again, and again, this, this also smacks at this idea, again, this us versus them, the idea of the you know, New Testament Christians, and one of the other chapters in there is if you believe in the New Testament, the Old Testament is no good anymore. You know, we don't need it, right? So this is another classic example of this idea of us as Christians versus them as, as, as uh, Jewish people, Judaism, right? Well, when you kind of you come to find out that, um, that the idea of born again is not just, even though it's mentioned only one time in the Gospel of John, you would think that, well, it's just it's a New Testament uh, uh, belief. But we all, but the thing that gets us is the way that Jesus reacts to Nicodemus, who acts completely ignorant about this idea of being born again. He says, you know, when Nicodemus says, how is this possible that a man can be born again, go back in his mother's womb? Remember, Jesus is, he's not, he's like going, oh yeah, I understand, you know, it's completely unique. You know, you've heard it said, but now I say this is a brand new thing. No, he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I'm talking about. Does right. that ever, yeah. you know what I mean? Does that seem incongruous ever? Raise a red flag, right? He, he talks about being born again. Nicodemus says, I had, I don't understand, but Jesus acts like he should understand that that's enough to right. kind of go, whoa. Yeah. And that's what, that, that's sort of my jumping off point toward this and because the amazing thing is when you start studying the whole book of god you look at the way water is typified we, we know that water is a type of the holy spirit there's even it even goes back to um uh where in the the, the life of judaism cleansing uh, with water touches every area of the israelites life which clearly explains why the jews in jesus time were so flabbergasted when jesus didn't wash his utensils and wash his hands and he would say, nothing goes in the body, defiles the body. So he was sort of upending this idea. But there's always these darn clues that I say, if you just look at the whole book, put in context, text without error, text without context is error. So to think that this idea of, of water baptism is unique to Christianity and not having anything to do with the whole book, look again. So a person in those days was required to be fully immersed. If you were a convert to Judaism, men on the eve of Yom Kippur, women before weddings, children on their 13th birthday, priests upon turning 30 years of age and when sovereigns on the day that they were crowned. Now keep that in mind. We'll, we'll tie that in, in just a bit. And it all comes back to the, a word in the book of Genesis where when God gathered the dry land and called it earth, the gathering together of the waters, he called sea. The, the gathering together of the waters that he said was good, this gathering comes, it's basically referring to the primordial womb of the world so that anybody who comes up out of the water, and it's what they call in the, in the Hebrew, it's called the mikvah. So if you come out of the water, you're seen as undergoing a new birth. Upon rising from the baptismal pool, a person is said to be a child born of one day. 
right? So it was for this reason, for example, that Jesus went to be baptized by Jesus, uh, not just to be not just to be born again, because that's what we, we think of the context. Well, he was going to be, you know, John was, he only had understood one context, to be sinless, right? You And, and Jesus, Paul, uh, excuse me, John says, why, why not even worthy to untie your shoes, you know? And Jesus said, in order to fulfill all righteousness, I'm going to be baptized. Why? Because he was a king being baptized. Uh, not only was he, a, you know, be turning 30, but he was also a king being, being, uh, being inaugurated. And interestingly enough, and so how could a teacher in Israel not know the importance of spiritual rebirth and the pursuit of God? It's not enough to simply contemplate the nature of God. The mikvah, ironically said, ironically enough, is also said to not only symbolize the womb, but also the grave. So when you exit the waters, you're a new creation. So understood in these terms, we now see that Nicodemus should have understood. And so what Jesus was doing was not telling him something new, but he was essentially just challenging him to remember what every teacher of Israel once had known, but by then had obviously forgotten. Yeah, that's so cool. I love that. Um, all right. So before I, uh, I jumped the gun, I asked uh, heaven, unlike okay. earth, is an eternal place. Correct. Correct. Heaven, unlike earth, is an eternal place. And then you fell off your chair, 90% of your audience. What heaven is not yeah. an eternal place? Whoa, right. wait a second. And again, remember how we talked about how we hear Jesus say things, we hear the Bible say things, we hear it, we hear it, we hear it, but we, we retune it into something else that it's not, okay? So we know that almost every tradition in the world has this place of transcendent, transcendental, eternal abode of the, of the gods, right? Life after death, uh, but uniquely the twin pillars of, of, of Christianity essentially are the eternal nature of heaven and also the immortality of the soul. So we're going to basically in this chapter, we have to deal with the, not just the eternal nature of heaven, but also the idea of the immortality of the soul, because essentially there are two things, you know, if the soul is eternal and heaven's not, then what the heck, right? It doesn't make any sense. So, but if, if, yeah. if, if heaven, if heaven and the soul have a different meaning in the Bible, then, then we got something to, to deal with. Okay. So, um, and again, I always I can remind somebody, you know, remember, I, I, I too, it takes one to know. And so when I heard this for the first time or, or started thinking about it for the first time, I realized I've, bled, I've believed these things all my life, that heaven and, and the soul are eternal. But the first thing that'll kill you or kill you or not kill you, I mean that metaphorically, but how many of, heard, of, how many of us have heard Jesus saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away? Yeah, you've heard it a million times. It's never heard it a million times. Thought about heaven, it. So what do we do though? Our brains just key on one thing, earth. Yeah, earth's gonna pass away, my, but my words will never pass away. No, heaven will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And John himself in, in the book of Revelation says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now we've got bookends here. We've got the, the, the best of the, the beginning of the New Testament and the end of the New Testament, right? We got Jesus in the gospels, and John closing the Gospels in the book of Revelation, all of it basically contradicting, or at least a discrepancy, on one of the most dominant themes of all Christianity, which is the eternal nature of heaven itself. So, and again, it's not like we haven't heard these verses, but we just sort of, again, we tune them out. So if a, if a place called heaven were truly eternal, then would it need to be replaced? No. Now, remember, we are not talking about a contradiction. This is where I say, I, I was really trying to wrestle with the idea of how do I rescue the baby from the bathwater? I'm not, I'm not saying that heaven doesn't exist. I'm not saying hell doesn't exist. I'm not saying that the human soul doesn't exist. What we're talking about is the, 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 the nature of heaven, earth, and the soul apart from who? The eternal one. 
God. God is eternal. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying God's not eternal. I'm just saying we need to put our focus back where it belongs, right? So I say, you know, it takes one to know one. And so what we must be dealing with is not an inconsistency, but again, we're dealing with a paradox. So, so I said, so whereas, whereas something that seems like a par- an, an inconsistency or a contradiction, philosophers call them paradoxes. So a paradox is defined as something that's apparently contradictory, but when investigated or explained may actually prove to be true. So again, notice how in a pace of the paradox, what's initially viewed as a contradiction is negated when it's sufficiently investigated. So the Bible is full of these apparent contradictions. This is where people will say, I get these on some of these other, my, the other shows I've been on, they'll say, this guy said the Bible's full of contradictions. You're not listening, are you? Yeah. I said, I said the Bible's full of apparent contradictions that, uh, that skeptics love to pounce on and frustrate the heck out of us believers. I said, so you need to, but you need to face the fact that if you read the Bible, that something is, something's going on. So for example, Christ referred to himself as the Prince of Peace, yet elsewhere, Jesus declared that he didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. That's a contradiction, right? No, it's a paradox. Jesus said, seek me and you'll find, seek and you'll find. But then he says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake will save it. Contradiction? No, paradox. He sends us out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be harmless as doves and wise as serpents. Doves are, I say, doves are cute and cuddly, right? Serpents hiss and bite. So, yeah. you, you know, so yet Jesus expected his disciples and, but no, he basically commanded us to embrace two natures in one body. That's a contradiction, right? No, it's a paradox. So, yeah. So what we need to do is we need to, to based on this, we need to re- reinterpret our understanding of heaven as being both a place of, that is eternal and temporal, Right. It's there's an eternal aspect to it with the, with God's presence, but then there's also a temporal aspect of it too. So, so and again, so heaven. But see, guess what? Heaven wasn't the only thing in the Bible besides God that's not that shouldn't be seen as eternal in nature, which is the eternal soul, the quote unquote eternal soul. Uh, this is important because uh, you know we learn that when we learn that human souls are immortal, it's really not scriptural because, and I'm not saying that God doesn't offer eternal life. Because again, but the context is the offer of Christ. So imagine this. Imagine Christ offers us eternal life, but you're already immortal. Hello? Yeah, yeah. That so doesn't make any not, sense. Yeah, yeah. So right out the gate, someone's not thinking straight. But then that, but who's going to get stoned? Who's going to get yelled at? Who's going to get excommunicated? The weird guys? <laughs> that's, why I'm on, that's why I'm on your show. Are other people inviting me on their show? No, no. Uh, Samuel's got the guts, right? He's got the guts to, to go outside the camp and say, come on, guys, let's think. Let's think, you know? Um, so a little self-promotion for Samuel Delgado and his, his show, The Weird Christian Podcast. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean, again, this doesn't mean I'm questioning the human soul. It's just that when God created Adam and Eve with immortal souls, guess what, folks? The original nature was forfeited when they disobeyed God by eating the tree of knowledge, right? So yeah. just as nonsensical as the notion of the immortality of the human soul subsequent to the fall of Adam is the notion of the immortality of anything other than the Godhead, which quite naturally includes, you guessed it, heaven. So according to this view, then, basically you have a heaven that is the dwelling place of God. And so what we're really dealing with is not that our deepest hopes and dreams is going to heaven what's our what's our dream of being it's the being in the being united to the very heart of god then and only then there and only there will we know what it means to be in heaven 
Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of excites me. And I, I remember my pastor, he, he actually taught on this misconception. Uh, a lot of us think that, you know, we, we just look forward to, you know, when we pass, we're entering heaven and then, and then that's it. But we see that scripture speaks about new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, uh, and, and of course the resurrection. And that's really ultimately, uh, that is what we're, we're looking forward to. And that's, and that includes people that, that have, that have passed, uh, I guess, depending on how you, you, you view time, but, um, certainly, um, it, it, it's a different, uh, event than passing on into the heaven that exists now and then the new Jerusalem we're looking forward to. So that, that excites me. Um, and so kind of what you were leading in with the immortal soul kind of leads into the, the next, uh, fishtail, which is hell like heaven is a place of perpetual existence. And this is, this is really big because again, one of the most, think about it. One of the most embarrassing things that we have as Christians is this, this, again, this, this contradiction, this dilemma of, of, of a, of a loving father who forgives his enemies and tells us to forgive his enemies. But if you didn't get baptized or you didn't hear about him because you were on the other end of the world, because, you know, because the Christians hadn't shown up yet. And even if they did, they brought uh, technology with them or they brought civilization with them. And they brought a bunch of sinners who wanted gold when they were trying to evangelize the world. And there's always this, you know, crazy contradictions. And then you find out that hell is, you know, you're a place where God's going to, you know, people are going to fry forever and ever and ever because God loves you. That's weird. That, that's weird, right? So I, I had to figure out, wait a second, if heaven and earth will pass away, then, ooh, wait a second. If, if those two are, are off, off the map as being eternal, then hell is certainly fair game as far as I'm concerned. I don't know about you. You know what I mean? And then I, then I started, and I, I didn't even know about it. There was a thing called annihilationism. I'm not yeah. sure if you've heard of it. I didn't even know about that until like a year after I had finished this book. So I didn't even realize that I was really? sort of in this camp. Wow. I had no idea about it. I was just coming at this from a kind of just, you know, just a, an average Joe, whatever. Not, not average in the sense that I'm ignorant of the Bible. I've been, you know, again, I've been studying since I was 16. That's like 30, 30. God, I didn't want to name myself. I don't want to age myself. But when you've been immersed in this, this question for so many decades and you've got, you know, great teachers and whatnot, you start to come, you start to have insights maybe that other people that just, I mean, I love baseball and sports, you know what I mean? I love statistics and stuff like that, but it's a different thing where you've spent your life not studying the Bible where suddenly the insights sort of will hit you like, wait a second, there's enough biblical information here. And one of the first ones was that hell is a, is a terrestrial place according to the Bible. So whereas heaven is eternal and sort of the, the abode of, the, of above of God, it says that, that, that hell is actually was under the ocean. Like in the book of Enoch, for example, it talks about the abyss. And it says that as the spirit of God was hovering over the, the, the waters, that underneath the abyss was this, this place called hell, right? So it's a terrestrial place. So in my mind already, I'm thinking, okay, new heaven and new earth, and hell is not this other inter, interdimensional location located beyond the earth if heaven and earth pass away i'm thinking okay so that's my that's sort of my goal well how what about what else in the bible is going to help me understand that that as as heaven and the, the soul are not eternal maybe hell's not either so because like i said the most disturbing thing about hell is that it's not just a place of torment and suffering and pain it's eternal torment it's eternal suffering it's eternal pain 
But again, the most mind-boggling thing of all is this place of retribution is the, is the brainchild of the God of love, right? Oh, well, what's going on here? Of course, and then the Christians will say, well, God never made the body hell for humans. I understand that. But there's still a lot of humans, according to them. You know, how many people love to just say, they're going to hell, go to hell. Like it's as if they have the right, you know. And again, remember, it's the us and, the, the us and them thing. Well, if you're not with us and Jesus, oh, you're going to hell. And they actually look at you with a straight face when they say that, you know, we got to stop doing that. We got to, because obviously this is only a place for God's judgment to, he only has the right to send people there. So we got to just like, you know, put a, put a, uh, we got to zip it, zip it, zip it. Because if they're not against us, God, they're for us. So, so as I said, but, so I have to ask this myself, if the, the Old Testament, for example, if you look at the Old Testament, guess what? There is no burning, fiery, belching depths of hell. It's just called, Sheol, it's the place of the dead. It's the abode of the dead, but it's not Dante's hell, right? It's, right. Not, the, it's not the seven levels of hell. That happened as a result of one thing that was unique to Christianity, which was the Septuagint Bible. Septuagint Bible in 250 BC was the Greek version of the Old Testament. So there was a synergy between the Grecian world. So the, 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 the language of the Greeks is very, very important because Jesus said, in the, in the, or, or the Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Part of that fullness of time was the, the Grecian language frame was in vogue. It, it was like the English of modern day, like French was decades, you know, centuries ago with French was sort of the international language. Now English is like essentially an international language. Back in then, the Greek, Greek was holding sway. So the Bible is written in Koine Greek. And because it was written in Koine Greek, it's very precise. But there was some baggage that came with the love of Greek. And part of it was the Grecian mythology. And it also goes back to this idea of whereas Hades designated the whole world, because that's what in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, excuse me, in the Septuagint Bible, Sheol became, um, it, it became Hades, okay? So Hades is Greek, right? Sheol was Hebrew. But then, but then Hades not only designated the whole of the underworld, according to Greeks, but it also had the deepest levels of Hades contained in this horrific zone known as Tartarus, Reserved right. as a dungeon of torment and suffering, particularly for those, and listen, this is interesting, particularly for those superhuman beings that the Greeks called Titans. Yeah. Crazy enough, it just so happens that these Titans bore an uncanny similarity to the giants or Nephilim in the book of, Gen of Genesis that wreaked such havoc on the antediluvian world that caused God to destroy the earth with a great flood. By the way, sidebar, God did not destroy the earth because of the sin of man. The, uh, like God was embarrassed with sin, the the book of uh, the book of, of Enoch, the, what the watchers and it was spoken of in in the book of Genesis. But then it was it would, in about the fourth century, it was excised out of the canon because uh, certain uh, church fathers were embarrassed with the story of the, these watchers that were mating with the daughters of of mankind and creating giants. And it was the it was the destruction caused by these giants, these Nephilim, that caused that triggered the flood. And if you ask yourself, why would God even let that happen in the first place, then you have to get my other book, Tales of Forever, to find out what these, uh, why God allowed the Nephilim uh, it to be a, 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 an accidental outcome of these watchers who came to earth in the days of, of Enoch, because Enoch's dad was called Jared, and Jared means in, in his days that they, they descended. So as it, you know, the, the names of the Bible are very important. So Sidebar, sidebar, sidebar. So that was when church fathers like Arrhenius and Justin and Martyr, Clement of Alexandria began to seek Tartarus. 
as being synonymous with this, this Hades, so that within 200 years after the birth of Christ, the New Testament guides were using this word Ionos, which was eternal. They used it when they associated with eternal life and eternal punishment. And they started to talk about the eternal nature of hell. But the unique thing about the word Ionos that comes with life and comes with punishment is according to Strong's concordance again. And this is very, you know, how many times I mentioned Strong concordance, right? How important is it for us to know the, the, the meaning of the language that gets watered down because of the preciseness of the Greek language? So where, whereas we have roofs, in the Greek, they had a roof that was falling and a roof that was stationary. That was that precise, okay? So this word for that they, the English then translated just eternal life and eternal punishment. You have to understand when Jesus said, these will go to eternal punishment, these but the righteous to eternal life. Strong says that Ionos is an adjective that modifies whatever it's associated with. So I say, uh, it, is, it seems likely again, that, that the word eternity acts like a kind of uh, cosmic Rorschach test. Remember the Rorschach test, which the, 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 the psychiatrist would give you, it's, that, it's called the inkblot test. And they give you an inkblot and the, and, the, and the guy says, what does that remind you of? Well, two bears in the snowstorm or you know, three beehives and a guy gets stung or whatever. He's just, you know, so it's a Rorschach test. So it's essentially the eye of the beholder. The ambiguity of the Bible, the paradoxical nature of the Bible allows this kind of thing where God lets us make this kind of kind of a judgment, right? And we see this, for example, in the, the story of Jephthah offering his daughter as a burnt offering in the Old Testament, where he, he wins a great victory. He promises God, if God brings the victory to him, he'll give his daughter, uh, he'll, no, he will give the first thing that comes out of his door when he comes home as a burnt offering. And oops, his daughter comes out. But guess what? A lot of people don't realize that the Bible does not give us the end of that story. It doesn't tell us that he really give the him or the daughter as a burnt offering, like we think, like actually like, like Isaac was going to be offered as a burnt offering, or did he just offer her to the services of the temple? Because he could have done that as well. He could have just said, you know what? Now you're like Mary. When, when, when Mary's parents, you know, they gave her over to the temple to be holy from her, her uh, from the days of her youth. Could have been both ways. So essentially, God leaves it up to us. So I say, now, could it this word, this, this word ionos, by the way, that we get eons? So when we talk about the eons of time, how long are eons of time? Are eons of time eternal or are they like really, really, really long eons? So, right? So eons, right? Yeah. You, you, yeah. yeah. So that's what this word comes from. So essentially what we're dealing with is, let's say if, you're, if, you, if you view God as a loving, merciful God, you're probably going to believe in this, what I'm going to tell you. And if you're really believing that God's an angry God, a lot of angry people think God's going to send a lot of people to hell, right? They're just angry. They just want to yeah. see a lot of people go to hell. Well, then that you're going to probably interpret this differently. Because again, the key to interpreting the word ionos, which is an adjective, which modifies whatever it's associated with. When you're dealing with eternal life, I say you're clearly where it's eternal life. It's with God. Then you have what they call then you're you're translating it correctly but what you're dealing with is you have to understand that god's punishments are always time dependent okay so when god punishes israel for 70 weeks of years and he scatters them for 70 times 70 there's an end to that punishment okay yeah. when they're they're in bondage for 70 years in babylon there's an end to that punishment right the uh, you know uh, morning comes at night joy comes in the morning god is a god of punishment and he's a god of of, of mercy but, but punishment always ends. 
Okay. Right. So my theory again is based on this idea of, of when he says eternal life, Ionos life, Zoe or for life, they use Ionos death. So it's time specific, just like all the judgments of God. So essentially what you're dealing with, and this is, this is my final say on this is you, you have three aspects of God's word. You have an abyss that is under the ocean. And by the way, the ocean uh, is very important is, is in scripture. The ocean itself is a repository of sin. So when he talks about in Micah, it talks about uh, God casting our, our sins into the ocean, right? Also the Greeks, the, there's a connection between the Grecian civilization and the, and the Hebrew, where it talks in Homer's Iliad, talks about the, the, the cleansing of mankind is through the, the repository of the ocean. So the ocean is a repository of sin, okay? But so, so essentially that's why it's under the ocean, right? It's under the earth, or excuse me, the hell is under the ocean as a, as a, as a almost like a, a capstone or something to hold it down, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is, if you look at humans that are, that if humans, if the human soul is not as immortal as all the church fathers said, there, and heaven and earth are not immortal, then what you've got is that death and hell are destined to become one day are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and which therefore, again, nullifies the possibility of eternal retribution. And so if you look at it as a holistically, again, not just one pet verse, not just, we're not doing this because we wish God was, was more, you know, was, was happy and likable and would forgive us someday. I don't give a dang diddly squat about my opinion at all, anything. This is why I've spent so many decades being unpopular, whatever, because I don't, I'm not looking at a feel good portion yeah. of the Bible. I'm looking at what the Bible really says. Like I said, like you were saying about the animals, there's a lot of books written anecdotally about how we know God loves us. Therefore, and there's all these conversations about you know, animals coming after lives and the touching of the animal spirit. And it's all feel good stuff. Yeah. Never have you ever heard what the Bible says da, 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 by boom, 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 boom. Right. That's what's unique. I hopefully, hopefully about the, the fish tails. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that I've heard, uh, so I heard about annihilation, uh, annihilation. before reading this. So, so I already had, um, and you kind of, you actually had some, some things written in fishtails that I had not heard from, from nationalism. Um, but they would say, uh, they would quote that verse that Jesus said, don't, don't fear, um, something that can destroy the, the body, um, but fear the one that can destroy the, the soul. Um, and they also talk about, uh, kind of, I think it was the Jewish concept of the, there was a place where there was like they burned trash. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Gehenna. Gehenna. Gehenna, right? Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. They would destroy the trash there, but it, it would the you know the burning was ongoing. So the concept was that even though the the burning would not stop, what mm -hmm. would go in there would be destroyed. Um, All anyway, circuit so, arguments. Uh, All circuit arguments based on their own rhetoric, not necessarily the, the, the again the, the the gestalt of the. Of, the, of everything I'm just reading to you as far as everything. I mean, you know what I mean? They're just a circular. It's like a dog chasing its own tail. Yeah. It's Gehenna burning, you know, because we're dealing with this translations. We're dealing with translations. We're not reading it in the original Greek. We're not going back to the original Hebrew. We're, we're ignoring that. You know what I mean? We're being taught by teachers who have their version, their pet theory, Jonathan Edwards. I talk about Jonathan Edwards, the famous guy who preached uh, the eternal soul dimension of the soul. People were, they were holding onto the pews 
because they they felt that they were slipping into hell as he was speaking. He was so magnetic about his, you know, mm -hmm. using these, but he was just, all he was doing was quoting from the English Puritan Bible that, and he wasn't going back in the, he didn't have concordances. You know, this is, this is part of the Daniel prophecy of knowledge being speeded up. We have access to, to aspects of knowledge that you'd have to have a doctrine of divinity to get. And then if I then disagreed, if I took these scriptures and I disagreed with my Doc, my 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 you know my handlers right this yeah. is why you know this is why <laughs> this is why the technology this is why my next book it's it's the promise of technology to get outside these um uh traditional status quo uh you know views of the bible so i have this i you and i for example have the power to reach your audience with no deacon boards we used to take deacon boards to send you yeah. and me to go to a place to get a group large enough to listen that's that's as large as your group is now just the power of technology yeah that's cool um i'm, I'm gonna skip ahead and make sure we have enough uh, mm. time oh wait oh you got to do this one everybody thinks that the holy spirit is the dude okay so i, I do okay, i do want to make we'll sure start. i get to like those, those last three so um, oh well, no, yeah. the last three, the last three are the ones that people have to buy the book to get. No, I'm just kidding. Those are the those are the top three, man. Come on. <laughs> well, at least let's do the let's do this one though. This, this okay. is very right. important to people. This okay, will blow people's it. minds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. no, you you introduce it. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit is masculine with no feminine component. Sure. God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness." Male and female, He created them. So He created them. The Bible says in no uncertain terms, and yet. Adam and Eve were what? A man and a woman created in God's image. So the Godhead should reflect the same division of sexes, correct? Man and female and female, correct? Right? Shouldn't it? Yeah, makes sense. You think. But guess what, folks? We're reading the Western Protestant translation of the Bible that we're not reading the Hebrew um, Old Testament because in the Old Testament, the, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit was always female. Then in the Greek Septuagint Bible, the, the Holy Spirit became the pneuma. Now the pneuma is neuter. Okay, so now there's no, there's no male or female essentially to the word that's neuter because now it's, it's in the Greek. But you have to understand, again, the Greeks were more, they were more Gnostic. They were more um, sort of, they were, not, they were not really protecting thus saith the Yahweh, you know what I mean? They were just translating it into the Greeks. So they kind of put a different twist on it. For them, the Holy Spirit was sort of this, this invisible entity. It was a force. It wasn't a person because the, because think about it. In, in the year, in 250 BC, Jesus was not there yet to talk about the father, you know, and as being a person, you know, that if you've seen me, you've seen the father. That was not there yet. It was not in place it's theologically, you know, intellectually. So yeah. you then, so then from, so then from the uh, the neuter of the Greek, you then had the uh, Latin West, because in the in the the, uh, the the Jerome's Vulgate, which was in Latin, suddenly now when John's Gospel speaks of the Holy Spirit as the Comforter, they put the word uh, they put the word he in replacement of a word called auto. And in the word auto, auto, as opposed to pneuma, auto, there, there is no he in the, in, the, in the Bible, when there is literally no he. So the one, the one that we're most familiar with is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you the comforter to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him, 
because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him because he abides in you and he'll be in you. The only problem with this is when he refers to the Holy Spirit as he or him is if you read the passage in the Greek, we find these words are never used as specific pronouns. In reality, it's only inferred much in the same way the Greek word ionos infers the meaning of eternal or time-specific, depending on the context in which it's used. Okay, So when Jesus refers to the spirit, the Greek word is pneuma, which is a neuter. Then we, that's when the sentence goes on to say that when the world, we aren't able to see him or know him, the word, the Greek word is auto, A-U-T-O, which is kind of weird because we just think of a car. Right. But in this case, in this case, according to Strong's exhaustive concords, this word auto is very often used laxly where the subject or the object to which it's referred is not expressly indicated, but must be gathered from some preceding name or from the context. From this, we see the Holy Spirit is referred to as him is quite illogical in the translation, considering the word pneuma is neuter, which we which would require the pronoun it. But we couldn't, you know, no one's going to call the Holy Spirit it, because at least we understand that it's, a, it's an aspect of the Godhead. And yeah. but this is what else is interesting. The, the female and male aspect of the Godhead isn't exhibited in humankind alone. It permeates every sphere of life on earth, from the highest primates to those invertebrates, even manifesting in the realm of insects and plants. So if, if male and female is in the, in the entire creation, how the heck can we leave out the female in the Godhead when it says that in the beginning, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the earth and the Hebrew was Ruash Elohim, which is to say Ruash is a feminine noun. And so what we're dealing with is a cultural uh, bias that caused the Christian translators, just like in the Hebrew, the Hebrew translators, they couldn't, they had a hard time talking about God's let and let gods, you know, make and they let man let, let you know, God, let, you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. That let gods make us in our image, right? Because they were dealing with uh, polytheism, so they didn't. They would yeah. translate it as God instead of gods, just so they wouldn't get accused of polytheism. Right. Now, in the same way, what you're dealing with is throughout the Old Testament, you have nothing but a female Holy Spirit. When it came, when the Holy Spirit came upon Moses, Joshua, David, Jephthah, Samson, Elijah. Elisha, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, and Zechariah. In every case, the, the word ruach, Elohim, was being used, and that meant the female God. So basically, so you've got God the Father, you've got Jesus the Son, gods, not God, creating mankind in their own image. Man, mankind created as male and female, all creation for that matter, from the highest primates, right? right? And finally, the Holy Spirit is comforter and advocate, an equal member of the Godhead. And so if all that is true, Pardon me for asking the obvious question. If there's a divine father and a divine son, then where the heck is the divine mother? Even a yeah. child, even a child who isn't as sophisticated enough to even know where babies come from, at least are aware enough to know that if children are involved, if children are involved, right? A daddy and a mommy are involved. Yeah. So, and again, then I asked the question, why this about face through the New Testament writers? And if you want to leave it there, you can get the book. But I do say that it's because basically the, the bias against female, I hate yeah. to say it, the bias against Eve, the very, you know, um, and also the gospel, of the, also Gnosticism. They were fighting Gnosticism at the time. So got the gospel, Nicodemus, for example, it said in there, it said, who, who doesn't, it said, whoever doesn't hate his father and his mother, as I do, cannot become my disciple. And whoever doesn't love his mother and father, as I do, cannot be my disciple. But my true mother gave me life. So there's, wow. again, like the idea that the Holy Spirit gave the, 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 the son life 
in some sort of metaphorical terms. So what we're dealing with again is the the idea that the that the you know this anti-female, and when in fact we, we should really just accept that, as the Bible says, we're made in God's image. And so can you imagine can you imagine this, you know, demonizing half the human race because mm -hmm. the Bible the Bible said he. Instead of yeah, looking yeah. just opening up a, no, a Greek New Testament or Greek concordance and saying that word he was never in there, and then you look at the total context of the Bible and history as well, because you got to look at it historically, from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the, and the Greek, and then the yeah. and the Catholic uh, Jerome Vulgate. So you see that swing from uh, feminine to neuter to uh, male, and boom, the light bulb goes on. Light bulb. Yeah, I love that chapter because the way you laid it out, uh, it's just it's just so plain. And you just keep it so true to the text, um, into to the Hebrew, and uh, it's one of those things. It's so ingrained in us that it's almost offensive to even bring it up. Mm -hmm. But then, heretic like you said without get, just getting outside of our own feelings, looking at at, at what it says. Um, uh, you know, I, I really think it, it's it's beautiful, um, and, and I've always I, I do know and. I, prior to reading this chapter, I've always, uh, I knew that the word helper uh, that is described at the, the, the same helper that Jesus said he would send, uh, referring to the Holy Spirit is the same helper that, uh, Help that he, he sent to Adam when he created Eve. Right. So, so there's that, <laughs> once again, another connection there. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I really loved how you just laid it out that, you know, obviously we were made uh, in his image, both male and female, but it, it's, it is all, uh, creation, that are all creation, male and female. So, um, yeah. and yeah, so I, I, I really like the, the way you, you laid out that chapter. And, you know, I do think, um, you know, that of course would only make sense that, uh, yes, we would reflect the, the Godhead thing. Right. I mean, um, it only makes sense, but, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, you're right. I'm glad we, we made time for that. Um, but I, so, I do want to skip ahead to the last three. And if we do have time, we can always, you know, circle back around. Sure. Um, but uh, you reap what you sow uh, speaks of good things happening to those who do good and bad things happening to those who do bad. So yes, misconception number three, you reap what you sow speaks of good things happening to those who do good and bad things to, to those who do bad. So again, so now I do kind of start with a little bit of a uh, kind of a, a switch because I'll start off by saying, You've heard the old adage, you can't take it with you, okay? Um, you know, Jesus saying, what good is it for a man to lose his soul, uh, to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul, okay? What else, you know, so what else could this mean except the getting into heaven, uh, we have to relinquish our, everything in our present life to, to, to get into heaven. That means that our, our earthly possessions down here and heavenly bliss are, are not incompatible. And then someone can say to me, well, wait a second, you know, I, what, we're, we're talking about you reap what you sow. Why are you talking about? Uh, earthly possessions and i say well because essentially this scripture of that paul talks about where you reap what you sow is unlike all the other bible misconceptions I, i'm always talking about how the most of these misconceptions are misconstrued because they're taken out of context well in this case you reap what you sow is actually misconstrued because it's it's actually almost taken in in context without realizing that paul actually shifts imperceptibly within the, his own context so you just have it's, it's another it's kind of like flipping the script essentially mm, because yeah. what's what's happening in, in the book of galatians he's actually talking about all the things that christians will suffer the consequences of if you live according to the flesh right and so 
and and again, and it said this is not apart from there. There is a principle in the Bible about reaping what you sow. So there's this. We have this double-edged sword. You have in what's in most people's minds. Um, if you sow with tears, you'll you'll reap songs of joy. If whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. A wicked person earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness will reap a sure reward. So there is a there's a, there is a larger context uh, in the Bible about reaping and sowing. But it turns out that when Paul talks about reaping and sowing in the one that we most know about, because we don't, we don't, right. nobody ever, I've never even heard of some of these scriptures until you actually start studying them, right? Right. Uh, and, and all we ever hear is you reap what you sow. And that means, yeah, that guy, you know, is going to get his, you know, he's going to get it, right? You know, whatever, you know, and, and that's our, that's like kind of like our, who God, I mean, I, I know I can't get him to jail, but God's going to someday get him, walk him, you know? And yet, when you actually read it in the context, you find out that, oh, man, he's talking about something completely different, which is back to the context of what I was saying about, about material things being incompatible with, with spirituality. So it's, a, it's like I said, you got you to read the whole chapter, not the way I butcher it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but um, we, for, the, for the sake of argument. So what we're doing here at this point, as I said, the context of Paul's statement in Galatians is that you are there's the flesh he says the sin, he, he contrasts the sins of the flesh and the spirit so he says that you know whatever whoever does all these different things will actually um you know they'll there's the fruit of the spirit such as love peace patience goodness and faith and then he talks about you know the other things the, the adultery immortality uh, immorality hatred envy and murder so and he, so right there you think okay those are the two bad things but then he shifts and he says uh, so make sure everyone proves themselves in whatever they do, and then they'll be able to rejoice in what they've accomplished and not, not in what someone else does because everyone is responsible for their own burden. So he's essentially taking that, again, another sidebar would be, he's not just letting you sit back and say, oh, that guy's immoral, that guy's idolatrous, and that guy's envious, and he's really bad, and he's going to get his. He's, he's putting it right back on us again. We're like, we're, going, we're, not, right. we're, not, we're, not, we're not judging ourselves. We're judging others, right? Because then he says, because everyone is responsible for their own burden. So, you know, you face yourself. I call it the mirror of truth. We should be looking in the mirror of ourselves instead of the mirror of everybody else's performance. But then what does he say now? Because, because everyone, right? Because everyone is responsible for their own burden and let everyone who's been taught in the word, this is in the same verse, right? This is, this is a smack dab, right? So prove yourselves. Uh, so, so everyone should prove themselves in what they do. Then you can rejoice. Then you're accomplished. Uh, not what someone else does because you're responsible for your own burden and very next verse and let everyone who's been taught in the word share the things the good things what they have with the one who's taught them and don't be deceived god cannot be mocked whoever sows that shall he reap whoever sows the flesh will reap destruction whoever sows the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life so don't grow weary with doing the right thing because in due time we'll reap a harvest as long as we don't give up that's all we remember. We just we just remember the back end of that story. Yeah. And we never realized that the context, and guess what? You know why? Because how many centuries have been dealing with the King James? So the King James says, for example, it renders these same verses, for, for every man shall bear his own burden. Let him who that is taught in the word communicate to him that teaches in all good things. As if we have any idea what the heck communicating good things is. To, what's that supposed to mean? No wonder yeah. mod, most modern audiences don't have the slightest idea what Paul is saying here. Fortunately, we do have the modern readers of the Bible with the word, uh, com, instead of communicate, they made it more sensible because they translated it as to share. 
That's because the Greek word being translated is koinonieto, which many Christians will recognize as coming from the more familiar koinonia, from which we get our designations of the koinonia groups. Okay, so in translating the word koinonieto, I'm very bad at the Greek, of course, koinonieto, as to share rather than communicate, the meaning of this verse was made completely different. And by the way, something I'm sure the enemy of God it really isn't happy because Satan knows that just as God knows, a verse like this plays a critical role in furthering the establishment of the kingdom of God. Where? On earth, not in heaven, on earth, because we're still on earth. We're trying to do what Jesus said is to you know, pray on earth as it is in heaven. We're trying to build up the kingdom of God on this earth, which is the subject of, of my next book, by the way. Um, so I'm very, very keen on how this all flows, right? From, from Tales of Forever, the first book, to Fish Tales, the second book, to the third book, which we were only hinting at. But so now you'll recall why I began this chapter in such a roundabout way when I spoke of the old adage, you can't take it with you. Because mm -hmm. believe it or not, when you are taught in the word and you share materially with one who teaches you, not because of, dare I say, uh, worthy projects like building a new wing for the youth group, or orphanages, which are wonderful things that we should all be helping with, but you're giving because of the teaching of God's word, which is, by the way, is not just God loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. That's like, that's kind of the, 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 the you know, why people are confusing what teaching is. We're talking about teaching God's control over history. We're teaching about how, you know, breaking apart the word of God here so that it illuminates and rescues and takes the sword out of the hand of all the people that are clubbing people to death who say, what we're saying without the context and then they think they're righteous taking us to court in jesus's name and he said no and so now you're giving and you're now now tradition that equated sowing and reaping within the narrow confines of the lust of the flesh or the fruits of the spirit now we have a completely new view of things and so that old view no longer makes sense so that we're talking about again hearing when we when we learn about god's control over history we're, it's giving God glory. We're not talking about us. We're not talking about how the Bible is going to be a benefit. It's going to be an insurance policy for us someday. Like we're going to just go on Sunday, make sure we pay our premium and go back to the world and know nothing about God's control over history. We just learned about Jesus. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he's got his, he's got your, he's got your back. I mean, or, or the prosperity doctrines that fill churches, that kind of stuff. We find out that, that we're talking about a message of God's control imagine how that would revolutionize right the the teaching of god's word if you you only gave because you are were taught in the word as opposed to doing any other way of giving which we equated by paul in this verse if you're paying attention no more talk about love gifts no talk about prayer clause no blessing packs no more gimmicks no more add-ons just giving as a response to the teaching of god's word what a revolution that would spark wow yeah i love that all right um so we'll do uh let, 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 we'll just have to kind of keep it short and sweet but all things work together for good means well, we could everything in life the, we could say that for for people who buy the book we'll just go back and on the one you wanted number 11 okay <laughs> um sure Fair. yeah you're right you're right um so let, let's end on number 11 um and then we'll kind of tie that into you know just give us give us the gospel here because that, that's why i want to end on this one as long as you try to live a good life god will let you into heaven when you die there you go. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to sound mercenary by forcing people to find out number one, but that's, you know, number one, you gotta, you know, you gotta hold that one in reserve. Like what's I'm the number one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, get the book. I don't know. But anyway, so, but yeah, but in lieu of that, so uh, misconception number 11 is as long as you live, try to live a good life, God will let you into heaven. Of course, 
Um, and I, I say, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me they were getting into heaven because they lived a good life, I'd probably be rich, but not really, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, but the, the problem with this one is, is that people are generally going to reduce the level of, of the Bible down to their humanly inspired understanding as opposed to the divine one. It's just natural, right? Even men yeah. like Thomas Jefferson, we're talking Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, they are well known for their contributions to history, but even they folded, as I said, like a house of cards when contemplating the sacred truths of scripture, right? They were influenced by the age of enlightenment. You know, it was, you know, God helps those who help themselves, blah, blah, blah. They, they would take, um, they'd create their own Bible, take all the miracles out, right? You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote, he created his own version of the New Testament. So, yeah. and he called, he called miracles in the divinity of Jesus, a corruption of Christianity, even though they wrote the Declaration of Independence and all that kind of good stuff. So, uh, but when you look at what the Bible says, you have things like Jesus saying to the rich young ruler, guess what? Uh, he says, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, good teacher. And he, and what does Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Why call me good? Nobody's good except God. So right out the gate, if, yeah. if only God can be good, that kind of negates the idea. First of all, living a good life is even possible. Right. Or else you got to throw that part out. Let's let's be like yeah. Jefferson. We'll cut that part of the Bible out, right? And uh, so then, of course, that's what the law of Mount Sinai made clear. Without the law, there's no knowledge of sin, right? No, no knowledge. You know, we don't know we're not good. Yeah. Now, and that so, and then the other major theme that this good life business ignores is what they call prevenient grace. I'm not sure if you've heard of prevenient grace, where God, the, the salvation process is always due to the initiate the prime initiative of god god calls us you don't come yeah. to the father willingly or by choice you're he draws you you know yeah. god calls us right it's called prevenient grace so although we know what it means to come to god we claim that it what knows what it means to come to god we do still have a very difficult time you know seeing things from god's point of view god himself is the initiator of salvation yeah. strangely enough this has been a lot of conflict between again the, the pre predestination people and Calvinism and versus Armenianism and just all back and forth, right? Now, of course, and I guess, hey, uh, so if God is the initiator of salvation, then even Jefferson and Franklin, of course, they thought that um, that Jesus was the highest expression of human morality, but they didn't believe in his divinity. So sadly, you you got to understand that if if nobody's good but God, and we we don't come to God because we ch choose to. And that when we are brought, we are called to God, it's, it's through Jesus and his word and being, his being drawn. And then you have to realize that when he died, if he was just a good and wise teacher, this is what you get. You get that Jesus was not a, he was not the savior. He was not God. He was just a good and wise teacher. Well, guess yeah. what? If he was just a good and wise teacher and not God, Calvary is meaningless because he was not a perfect sinless substitute for our sins. So if he was just a good and wise teacher, his death on the cross, poof, useless and so in the end it's not the goodness of mankind that enters us into heaven but rather it's the goodness of god that leads us to repentance because it's god who works in us according to his good pleasure both to will and to do amen um i love that yeah so i think that's a great place to end the fish tales i will put a link in the bio um so maybe we'll try to end on just like one fun question um top five events in the Bible you would like to visit as a spectator? I suppose you got to go for the, the juggler on that one. I want to see the angel rolling the stone away. 
and yeah, yeah. Jesus coming out. I mean, because without yeah, yeah. without the resurrection, we're we're the most miserable of all men. Yeah, and, yeah. and women. Yeah. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, you got four more. Uh, we can keep it oh. at one. You got four more. Oh, yeah. Well, I, well, then I then I'd love to see Jonah coming out of that whale. Okay. Yeah, I like that. I love that. Just to be consistent. I'd love to. Um, again, I'd, I'd love to be there when uh, Isaac was being sacrificed okay. just to yeah. see the look on his face. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And, um, and then, and um, three, that three, that's two more, two more. Yeah. In the Bible. Yep. Well, besides the, again, you know, I got to go with my brain, my brain's showing the, seeing the image of the parting of the Red Sea. Gosh, that's, yep. that's pretty outrageous. Yep. And that's four. And then one, one more. What else is, um something to do with the ark of the covenant um uh also i love the idea that uh that after they did the the red sea god made the guys that were carrying the, the covenant the ark of the covenant they couldn't just stand at the river jordan they actually had to get in knee deep before god yeah, parted yeah. the jordan because god was i love the idea that god is for every generation he challenges us to a new level of faith we can never we can never go back in faith and we have to actually learn from these previous generations and wow. that's why that's why God doesn't do a lot of parting of the Red Sea now because He's already done that, been there, done that, and now you and I have to live, live, expect the miracle that nobody notices. Yeah, and, wow. and He does lots of miracles, but we have God's done all that big stuff, and so now we got to move forward in faith and expect invisible, invisible miracles that uh, we recognize that built our faith, which is not blind faith, but is is faith to faith. Cool. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. Um, so tell people where to get, how to get in touch with you, where to get the book. Sure. Uh, Lost Stories Channel, uh, L-O-S-T, uh, S-T-R-I-E-S, channels, uh, channel Lost Stories, just like it sounds like, you know, there's stories that were lost. Uh, shed, it's called Shedding, uh, my, my, my byline is Shedding New Light on, on Truths of, truths of Old. <laughs> and uh, so www.loststorieschannel.com, you can get um, various aspects of the book. Um, again, also amazon.com and, uh, also going to be a source there to get all the different books. I got tales of forever. I got fishtails and, uh, other, other things as well. I have audio books on Amazon. I have, the, I have real one. I haven't done real two and three because it's a lot of work doing audio and, and editing and music and whatnot. I've done about half a dozen different YouTube videos as well. So I'll go to YouTube, uh, fishtails, W Kent Smith and subscribe and like. And uh, have some courage because there's a lot of people that watch them. They're like, I'm not sticking my neck out that large, you know, whatever. All right, have courage. And yeah. um, so that would be how to get a hold of me. And um, hopefully, like I say, hopefully uh, Samuel will have some kind of link because I want to yeah. keep him in the family as well. So I'll go to Samuel's uh, website. Cool. All awesome. right. Well, thanks again. I will keep in, uh, keep in touch with you. Uh, as soon as I'm done with uh, Tales of Forever, I'll, I'll reach out. We'll see if we can um you know make an episode somewhere in there thank uh, you thank you samuel for for having me on today yeah all right man that was a pleasure Thanks for the courage man you you got the you got the guts and the chutzpah that's uh many are lacking so thank you for living the life of true faith cool man all right well it's been a pleasure i'll keep in touch okay uh, over right. now god bless
there you have it ladies and gentlemen hope you enjoyed if you did make sure to share this with somebody you know like and subscribe if you're watching on youtube if you're listening on your favorite podcasting app leave us a rating and review you can email me at the weird christian podcast at gmail.com and with that being said we'll catch you on the next one